This morning we're going to start off with um, the two kingdoms, okay? Where we've been up to this point is the Israelis coming into the land, the period of judges, the period of, of kings, okay? And, and this is where we're starting off right here, because we had Saul was the first king of, of Israel, David succeeded Saul, and Solomon succeeded David. However, at the time of Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam took the, took the throne, and as predicted, God would raise up another man and separate the kingdom. He already had told Solomon that basically the kingdom was going to be divided. The people came to, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, through Jeroboam, the man that God would raise up to be the king of Israel. And he says, listen, just as Chad talked about, lower the taxes. They're way too high. We need a little bit of relief here. And stubbornly, instead of following God's will and seeking God's counsel for it, he turns around and asks ask his friends. And they say, no, don't do it. Don't lower the taxes. This right here causes the split of one united kingdom into two kingdoms. You see, the northern kingdom of Israel consisted of ten tribes of the twelve tribes of, of Israel. So they broke off to the north. The southern kingdom had Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And their capital city was in Jerusalem. The capital city of the first kingdom, the, the northern ten tribes, was initially in Shechem. Shechem was about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. From there, uh, some time later, they trans- transferred the capital from Shechem to the city of Samaria, where it would be the capital city of the kingdom of Israel throughout all their days. We see that this division of the kingdom occurred in 930 B.C. Now... From 930 B.C. to 722 was the kingdom of, uh, of the northern ten tribes, the kingdom, what was called Israel, okay? Um, the first king of Israel was Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam's legacy, and you see this if you start, if you start to read the book of Kings and Chronicles, is that his, his legacy was that he made the people of Israel sin. And this is talked about time and time again. Whenever they refer to evil kings... And they did the things that Jeroboam did. They said he, they fell in the sins of Jeroboam. So the very first king of Israel made the, made the people sin. What was the sin of Jeroboam? How did, he, how did he do this and make the people sin? Well, you see, God commanded that Jerusalem and the temple was a place to come up and worship. It was a place to come up and offer the sacrifices. But for fear that the people of Israel now, the northern, the northern kingdom, would come back into the southern kingdom, come back into the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, and worship there, their affections would turn away from his kingdom and back towards the kingdom of Judah, and back toward the place of worship, which is Jerusalem and the temple. In order to stop this from happening, Jeroboam raised up two idols. He put one idol in the northern, the northern part of the kingdom, and he put the second idol in the southern part of the kingdom. And under the guise of saying, okay, I'm going to lighten your burdens, you don't have to travel way far off. You can, you can come worship here, right here, right now. He actually made two golden calves. The very thing that the children of Israel made for themselves and says, this is our God. This is who we worship whenever Moses was up on the mountain, if you, if you can remember, remember that. So Jeroboam told the people, he says, this is your God. This is the place where you come to worship. And this is the God who, who, who saved you and led you out of Egypt. Well, of course, we know this, this is not true. This is not the case. 
However, this king led the people in a long line of apostasy and idolatry that the Lord would eventually judge and eventually would completely destroy the northern kingdom and exile all the people all all over the face of the earth. Matter of fact, even in this day, there's still a large population of Jewish people from the lost ten tribes of Israel that are being found in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Iran, even even some of the most uh, secluded places, like in places like in Indonesia and certain portions of Africa, they're actually finding people who have kept the Judaic law and the law of Moses, kept the culture and the society of ancient Israel, uh, and, and preserved their, their historical Mosaic law traditions. This is, this is pretty cool in my mind, okay? But overall... The people rebelled, and in the year 722, the Lord sent the Assyrians to attack the northern kingdom and completely disperse them. All in all, from Jeroboam, there were 20 kings in Israel. They were all evil, and all of them forsook the Lord. And like again, like I just said, in 722, the land was brought to, to nothing. The, the kingdom was destroyed. The people were exiled. Their kingdom was to never rise again, and all of them were exiled into foreign lands. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern, the northern kingdom is completely gone, completely dissipated. All you have left is the two tribes of, of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, sitting in the, land of, in the kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as their capital. Now, they did a little bit better than the northern, the northern kingdom did, but not by much. You see, all of their kings weren't evil. They had some evil kings, but they also had really good kings, too. See, the evil kings would come, and they would lead their people into idolatry, lead their people into worshiping the false gods, and then the good kings would rise up and say, repent of your ways. We're not going doing things according to the way that the Lord prescribed it. Turn back to the Lord. Repent. Let's, do, let's get this right. However, because of continued disobedience and idolatry in the year 606 B.C., this is not very, very long, about 130 or so years after the northern kingdom was exiled. The Babylonians came against Jerusalem and exiled the people. However, in 606, they did not completely destroy the city. They didn't destroy the walls. They didn't destroy the temple. They still had Jerusalem as their capital city intact. In now, what the Babylonians did at this time, they left a Jewish king present in Jerusalem. He was a vassal king, subservient to the king of Babylon and under his rule and his, his decree. But he left the people in the land, took the best of the people to Babylon, which was Daniel and Jeremiah, and some of these people were part of, okay? However, it wasn't very long, 30 or so years, they rebelled against the king of Babylon. and said, no, we're not going to do it your way, we're going to do it our way. The king of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar came and completely destroyed the city, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, destroyed everything they had, and completely exiled the people into Babylon. The only people who he left during this time were the poor people of the land to tend the land and to keep the vineyards and make sure the, the, the agriculture and the livestock and everything was still up to par and it was still happening. However, God was not done with Judah or the house of David by a long shot. Okay, During this time of kings, this is whenever the prophets arose. Now, a prophet was a man who came with the message of God. And typically it occurred whenever the people were rebelling against God and they were falling away into idolatry and he came with a, uh, with a word of rebuke to the people. Now, the prophets 
This was a pretty tough job, okay? Nobody really wanted to be a prophet. I mean, they were despised by the people. They had to speak, speak truth to power. Whenever you're in that position, you know, anything can happen. The king doesn't like what you say. He can kill you right there on the spot. So these were the times of the prophets. And they would, they would rose up and they prophesied things concerning that, that day, what would happen right then, then and there, things that would happen or were going to come to pass shortly in the future, but also things that were going to happen in the distant, distant time of future. Even some of them in the last days, the days right before the return of the Messiah. Now, in all these things, the Bible sets itself apart through prophecy, through the prophets, in that no other religious textbook, no other religious holy scripture or or, or holy text of another religion would ever dare to try to prophesy and predict the end from the beginning. You see, if it's only man's knowledge, man cannot do this. To be able to accurately and detailedly predict the future, it has to come from some kind of knowledge, some kind of, of source that's supernatural, above us, above the, the human mind, the human intellect, and the human will. This is why, and this is actually God's stamp of approval and God's stamp of authenticity, that the Bible indeed is the Word of God. No other holy book tries to do this. Nothing in Islam, nothing in Hinduism, nothing in Buddhism, nothing in Taoism, any other world religion, you will never find prophecy in their, in their religious text. If you have your Bibles with me, turn this morning to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Now this is God speaking through Isaiah, and this is what what he says. Remember this, and show yourselves, men. Recall to your mind, O you transgressors. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You see, God says, I am God, and there is no other. I'm the only one who would ever be able to tell you the end from the beginning and the things from ancient times, things that have not yet passed. This is his seal of approval. This is his seal of authenticity and it's found in Bible prophecy. It's found in the words of the prophets being able to historically and biblically be verified as being truth. Now, this morning, I want to take us through one in particular, okay? This is probably one of my favorite Bible prophecies. It's a little intricate because you actually have to do a little bit of math with it as far as for determining the age of of captivity for the Jews and how God said it was going to occur in the times that were going to happen. But I want to attempt this morning to walk us through it step by step so that I may show a little bit of light and show you and reveal to you one one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest Bible prophecies concerning the nation of Israel that was actually verified to the to the finest details. Remember, only God can do this. No other, no other uh, religious text even attempt to do it. You see, Jeremiah predicted that Judah, this is before they were exiled, the first exile, not the destruction of the city, the first exile, they would be exiled, exiled for 70 years. This is found in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, okay? Predicted. 
This exile occurred, the first time they came was in the year 606 B.C. The captivity ended in the year 536 B.C. Just as Jeremiah predicted, exactly 70 years from the time they were, they were taken away to the time they were allowed to, to return to the land. However, Ezekiel, now, in about the year 590 B.C., gave a new revelation that looked much further into the future. He gave the exact time that the Jews would finally come back into the land and be established as their own sovereign nation in the last days. You see, he, he said this period of time of captivity of the Jewish people would eventually be ended. And there was a certain time given that this, the punishment for their sins, the punishment for their idolatry, would be fulfilled. After the 70 years of exile, they were still under the dominion of foreign nations. They were not an independent or a sovereign nation. Turn with me and we'll look at this prophecy that, that Ezekiel gives. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And I want to walk us through it here because God gives it to Ezekiel in, in, in quite a different way. It's not the way that you think he would just come out and tell him. But he made Ezekiel to be a word a visual picture of the judgment that he was going to lay. Okay? So in verse 3, the last part of verse 3, God declares to Ezekiel, this will be a sign to the house of Israel. This is directly and specifically dealing with the house of Israel. Verse 4, lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear the iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of days. Three hundred, this is important, three hundred and ninety days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah for forty days. Very important to catch this last, this last part of the verse. I have laid on you a day for each year. God told Ezekiel, lay on your side for 390 years for Israel, that they bear their iniquity, and turn around and lay on your right side for 40 years for the iniquity of Judah. Remember, God told Ezekiel, 390 days on your left for Israel, 40 days on your right for Judah. He said that each day would be represented as one year of punishment. Okay? Are we all on the same page right now? said 430 years were determined for the punishment of Israel. The 70 years that they had already previously spent in Babylon was considered time served. So from the 430 years that God promised, we can lob off 70 years that they had already spent in captivity. They had already spent in punishment. So this occurs, and the beginning point of this prophecy starts at 536 B.C. when they came into the land. You see, and only a small remnant of the people came back. 95% of the, the, the Jews stayed in Babylon. They stayed in pagan Babylon, choosing to be comfortable, then going back into the land which God uh, swore to their fathers. We see here, if we take the punishment that God told Ezekiel would have, 430 years, and subtract it by 70... The years already fulfilled, the the years of punishment already fulfilled in Babylon during their seven years of captivity, that brings us to 360 years of remaining years of punishment. Okay? Now, historically and biblically, 
you go 360 years or even 430 years forward from the year 536 B.C. It was actually more, more particularly and specifically the springtime of 536. Nothing happened. Israel did not come back into the land as a sovereign nation and as, the, as their own, under their own flag and having their own kingdom restored. Nothing happened, okay? And many critics of Bible prophecy will point to this right here and say, look, God said that four, 430 years or 360 because they already spent 70 in captivity was determined that he'd be reestablished the people back in the land. That never happened. The Bible was wrong. Bible prophecy, that's bunk. That's, that's just, you know, that's just made up words, okay? So it does raise a question here. Was Ezekiel wrong? Did he miss the mark here? Is this just like, you know, some kind of prophecy that was never fulfilled? Once again, biblically and historically, it reveals it that once the Jews came back from, from captivity, they did not repent of their sin. They continued to sin and continued to do the same things that God had punished them for in the first place. Okay? Y'all stay, y'all stay with me here because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point here. We're making a turn here. An interesting passage is found in Leviticus 26. It's where God is dealing with the, with the Jewish people and he's promising blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Four times in this one chapter of scripture, God tells the people, if I punish you for something and punishment and judgment comes down and you do not turn from your sin, you do not repent of your sin, that the reason I sent you into exile for, I will multiply your sin seven times over. Four times in this one, in this one uh, chapter, God tells the people, if you do not repent for the thing that I punished you for, I will multiply your punishment seven times over. Go home and read it. it, it it's all in there, okay? So now we see, we're at the point right now, seven years are already served, 360 years remain to their, to their punishment. Now, they did not repent. They did not turn from their ways. Anybody has a calculator on your phone? Break it out with me right now, because we're going to start jumping to a little bit of math here. We had 360 years that God said, we're determined for your punishment. Now, one thing we have to understand here, okay? This is talking about a biblical year, not our current calendar year. Our current calendar year is 365.24 days a year, all right? This is not the year that the Bible uses. The Bible uses the, the lunar the month, the lunar month to make a lunar year. Twelve months of thirty days a month is based on the, the cycle of the moon, okay? So the biblical year was actually not three hundred and sixty five days, but three hundred and sixty days a year. This is this is the year that the Bible uses right here. So we have three hundred and sixty days or three hundred and sixty years remaining of Israel's punishment. They didn't repent. Let's multiply times seven. Times seven. So this would increase Israel's punishment because they did not repent to 2,520 years of judgment. God says, you don't repent. I'll multiply times seven. They went from 360 years of remaining judgment to 2,520. Incredible, right? Now remember, this is biblical years, okay? This is not calendar years. In order for us to realize when Israel's captivity would be ended, according to God through Ezekiel, we would have to convert the biblical year to our modern calendar year, which is 365 days. Remember what we said a year was in the biblical year? How many days? 360, right? Okay. So let's multiply 
2,520 years times 360 to get the amount of days that would happen according to the biblical year. Times 360. This gives us 907,200 days. This is actually the length of days that God said the people would be in exile and be under captivity. To convert this to our calendar year, what we have as our modern day time record, months and years and decades and whatnot, we have to divide this by 365.24, okay? Divided by 365.24. This brings us not to, two, not to 2,520, but to 2,483.8 years, okay? So Israel's worldwide captivity would end 2,483.8 calendar years after the Babylonian captivity ended. What year did this end? 536 B.C., remember? More, more, more specifically, in the spring of 536 B.C. Y'all stay here with me. We're about to hit home here, okay? From this time right here, let's subtract the year of 536.4. The year that their captivity ended, minus 536.4. This brings us to 1947, okay? 1947.4. Now, one thing we have to realize, crossing over from B.C. to A.D., there's only B.C. 1 and A.D. 1, so there's no year in between. Therefore, that one year has to be added to the calculation. Let's add one year. This brings us to 1948.4. Does anybody know what happened in 1948, more, more specifically, May 15th, 1948? For the first time in all of history, since the days of David and Solomon, had the Jews came back under their own sovereign flag as their own independent nation. Exactly the amount of time that God told Ezekiel that Jews would bear the iniquity of, and they would be in captivity. Isn't this awesome? This is the absolute seal of approval and the absolute seal of authenticity that God is the author of this word of God. It is what he says it is, and he'll do what he says he'll do. Now, for the sake of time, I can't go through some of the other stuff I wanted to, but there's another one that's absolutely with the same, exact same precision as Ezekiel here found in Daniel. What time is it? We got five till? Do it? All right, we're going to run through it. And, and it should be a little bit easier now because we know the calculations of biblical year versus calendar year and the, the year one, okay? All right, I'm going to run through this one, okay? In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, a prophecy concerning the Messiah is given in specific parts, okay? Excuse me. The first part states that at the end of 69 weeks, the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Okay? It's actually stated in the Bible, seven weeks and 62 weeks, to equal 69 weeks. The starting point, according to this scripture, is said whenever it's declared, and Chad talked about it through Nehemiah, whenever it's declared, the restoration of the city of Jerusalem would be declared from this point forward... 69 weeks would be the, the determined amount of time before the, the, the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. Now, one thing we have to realize here. 
This term weeks is not actually seven days, okay? In the Hebrew, this term weeks actually uh, talks about a Shabuah. A Shabuah is um, kind of like our decade. A decade is a period of 10 years. A Shabuah was a period of seven years. So after 69 Shabuahs, from the going forth of the, the declaration to rebuild the, the, the city, the, the Messiah would reveal himself. And let's just read it here, okay? Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one. But so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It shall be built again with plaza and moat, even in dark times. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. Okay? We know from history and the Bible that Artaxerxes, the Persian king, let Nehemiah, or gave Nehemiah the provisions and the, um, the permission to go forward back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. This occurred in 444 B.C. Historically, we know that this was the date given back to the Jews to go back and rebuild the city. Okay? So, Daniel says that 69 weeks are determined. 62 and, uh, and 7. 69 weeks would be. Now we know that a week in right here is not, not 7 days, but literally a period of 7 years. Okay? Everybody with me? So 69, he says 69 weeks times 7, because there's a period of 7 years, equals 483 years. Once again, we have to do the math on this because this is not our calendar year, so it wouldn't match up to our calendar date. This is biblical years. We'll do the same way that we did with the first prophecy from Ezekiel. We'll multiply this for 483 years. We'll multiply it times 360, because there are 360 days in the biblical year. This brings us up to 173,880 days. The same way that we converted biblical years to calendar years, we'll do the same way here. We'll divide it by 365 days. Divided by 365.24, because, you know, we have the leap year included. So this actually gives us 476 years from the date was given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Now, let's subtract. What year was it given, the, the issue and the decree given? 444 B.C., right? Subtract 444 from 476 years. We come to the year 32. Now, once again, we skipped from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., so we have to add a, a, a calendar year to this. Plus 1 equals 33. Does anybody know what happened in the year 33? It says that, it, uh, that, that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people laid their, 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 their clothes before him and laid palms before him and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David, Hosanna. And it were all titles of the Messiah. So for the first time, Israel as, 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 collectively were proclaiming Jesus as, as their king, their Messiah. 
And the Pharisees heard and they said, do you not know hear what these people are saying? This is blasphemy. Stop them. And Jesus said, if they would not cry out, most certainly the stones would cry out. And we know what happened within a week later. He was cut off, just as Daniel said, but not for his own sake. He'd done nothing wrong, and he was found innocent in all of his ways. Because he was cut off because of his people, because of the sins of his people. So once again, Daniel shows us with absolute pinpoint precision that the Bible is true. Bible prophecy can be trusted, and the, this word of God is the only word of God. The God of all creation, the one who stands out outside of space and time, is the only one who can accurately predict the end from the beginning. This, out, this is outside of human means. So, I just want to stand here and give, give, give us a couple examples from prophecy that the Bible is true. And you know what? We can rely on the Bible to be the absolute truth of the Word of God and it's something that we can absolutely stake our lives upon and build our lives upon because it is true. It is the truth of the Word of God. Now, I had some prophecies, 17 in particular, that were talked about Jesus in the Old Testament, about how that he would come from the, he would be, he would be born in Bethlehem, he'd be raised in, in Galilee, how that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And now this is all the Old Testament prophecies, okay? This, these are written thousands of years before Jesus walked on the, walked on the scene. So, and down to probably about 500 years before, before Christ came. And how that he would be numbered among sinners at his death, but at the time of his burial, he'd be placed with the rich. And we see that happen because he, he was hung with two thieves, right? But yet... Uh, Joseph of Arimathea came down and took his body and placed him in his tomb. He was a wealthy man. Placed him in a, in a tomb hewn out, hewn, out, hewn out of rock. And how that none of his bones would be broken. How that his, his side would be pierced. How that um, they would gamble for his clothes at his feet. How they would stand, stand at him and mock. How that he would be despised and ill-treated by men. How he'd be beaten and spit upon. And all of these things were prophecies concerning the Messiah that come in the, come in the last day. And whenever you look at it, just for instance, like the, the, the prophecy that he was to be born in Bethlehem, there's a probability, a statistical probability of about one in a hundred of somebody being able to fulfill that one prophecy, okay? And the range goes from like a statistical probability of like one in 20 all the way up to like one in 200. However, whenever you take only 17 of the literally hundreds of prophecies concerning the Christ, who, who the Messiah would be. Whenever you take just 17 of these together, you come to an astounding probability of one in 4.7 trillion times a billion times a billion that one man could possibly fulfill all of these prophecies with his life, burial, and eventual resurrection. And many of these things Jesus had no control over. The, 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 the circumstances that surrounded these prophecies about his life we're completely out of his out of his control, so it lends its its credibility to once again the prophecies concerning Jesus and the prophecies concerning the future are absolutely accurate down to the very minutest detail. So this is the main thing. Since we're on the prophets this week, and we move past the kings and get into the prophets, I just want to shed a little bit of light to y'all this morning. And literally, there are hundreds of these kind of prophecies that have been fulfilled historically. In the past already, some of them are right now, right here today, in the process of being fulfilled, and some of them have been yet to be fulfilled. 
But how many of us know that if the ones in the past have been fulfilled with such pinpoint precision and detail, we can have trust that the ones that have not yet been fulfilled in the future will be fulfilled just the same way. Amen? The Bible is reliable. We can trust it. Amen? Father, we just come to you today, Lord God, and we realize that you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. Father, you are God and there is none like you, O God. For you prove yourself in your word, O Lord. You say, who else could prophesy the end from the beginning and tell the future things from the ancient times, O Lord? Lord, there is none but you. And you are God and you alone are God of this creation and the God of this universe, O Lord. And we just give you the due honor and proclaim your name, Lord God. We give you the glory and the honor and the power forever, Father God. It is yours. And Father, we just know that you are trustworthy, that you are able, and that your word is solid. And we can stake our lives and put our lives upon it, Lord God. And we just thank you for these things, Lord God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for revealing your power and your majesty to us, Lord God, through your word. There's all these things, Lord God, we are thankful. And we just give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, thank you, guys. Good morning. Y'all go forward and uh, enjoy the service today. Amen.